It's episode 105 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Jacob Sager Weinstein. Thank you. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I'm it's very, great to be here. I'm very well. I'm, I'm very glad that you are here too. Um, we should probably paint a picture of where we are. Yes. It's a beautiful July, sunny day, and we are in Regent's Park. It's lovely. That's when I say I'm glad to be here. I mean sort of metaphorically here on the podcast and literally here in Regent's Park. So <laughs> both equally delightful places. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, so yes, if we have any um, interruptions... Uh, that'll be why. Uh, brilliant. So, um, at the moment, you're in Magict. That's right. Tell me about Magict. Uh, Magict, uh, and I want to phrase this carefully, Magict is an improvised tribute to Harry Potter. Um, it is, uh, we're improvising scenes that are set in the Harry Potter universe. Uh, it is not really narrative in the sense that we things do sort of often end up connecting but it's not we're not making a very strong effort to make a lead to b lead to c as tightly as they would in an actual book it's more just sort of having fun it's all it's it's a a montage and just all the characters happen to live in the harry potter universe cool um so how did you get involved what inspired you to get involved with this uh so i had taken a break from improv for a while um uh and part of what I liked about this was that about the sort of the, the, the nursery original I should mention, and I, I wanted to give a try to that sort of that method of doing improv where you have a month or two of very intense rehearsals and then a month of shows and then you're done. Uh, and I thought that that this this may require a bit of a flashback. So some of the th- reasons I took a break from improv were were some frustrations with with the way rehearsals often tended to work and in a standard improv group and so I thought this might alleviate some of those frustrations uh, and it, it's been a great way to work it's been really fun it was very int- it's been very intense um, we've had our first we had a preview in our first show last week which was great uh, and we have three more shows I think at the time uh, of recordings so yes, yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes by the time it comes out it may be a, a storied uh, epic famous show from Improv's past, I don't know. Oh, I'm going to release this on Wednesday, so okay, I think there good. are a couple more shows, so people can yeah. still, if they're listening on the day it's released, they can still check out a couple more shows. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting the way the Nursery Originals are doing that short, focused burst, and then moving on. Yes. I think that's really interesting, because I also have struggled with the rehearsal um, I'm trying to say practice actually more than rehearsal anyway either way of improv because everyone's busy sometimes they're busy doing other improv things yes um, and that's kind of why I've been exploring smaller groups and with Bryn you know doing Doctor 2 prop because there's only two of us yes and things are much easier to organize that's that's exactly right and I I have so I yeah I had I had experience a couple of times with previous groups where I think just because people had, everybody has a different level of business, business at different times in their lives, and the, the more people you have, the less likely it is that everyone's business coincides, and you end up spending, you end up having very few rehearsals where everybody's there and everybody's on time. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I, I really like the nursery model where you know in advance, everyone is, everyone is doing that show because they can make those days. Yes, so. yes. So uh, did you audition for Magic? I did, yeah. What was the I process did. of that like? Uh, it was... It was 
perhaps as befits the show, a sort of standard improv audition, but with some Harry Potter elements. Wow. Um, so um, we did some scenes. We did some scenes that were not in the Harry Potter world. We did some scenes that were in the Harry Potter world. Um, the one that I remember and the one that I think maybe why I was in the show was one where uh, I was a Slytherin who wanted to join Spew. How much do you know about the Harry Potter world? I have read all the books and I have seen all the films. Okay. So, um, but equally, I have not retained a lot of the information. But Slytherin, uh, yes. Yeah, so Slytherin, so for the non... So, so I am Slytherin. Are you? So, so... Which was a surprise to me. Well, yeah, Pottermore sorted me into Slytherin as well. So you and oh. I can hang out together and oh, make evil schemes. Well, that, I feel a little bit better now, yeah. actually. Yeah, I, I personally identify as a Hufflepuff. Oh, right. So... We see, my kids, um, my kids uh, chose which houses they were going to join. And I, I felt a little bit annoyed because as their dad, I wanted to make sure I was really involved in their educational choices. Yes, as you should uh, be. Well, I, I felt so. So suddenly... Uh, one was in Hufflepuff and the other was in Ravenclaw. And I was like, well, that's fine, but I feel like I should have had a say. So then I did the Pottermore test and I came out of Slytherin, which I was surprised by. Yeah. I Now, by the way, Jules Munns, director of Magic, is is a Slytherin and is proud of it. He feels like that's totally right. But it seems like, <laughs> it seems like it's like him sitting happily in the Slytherin common room and yeah. like the rest of us going, what are we doing here? <laughs> Sorry, you were saying you played the scene. Oh yeah, yeah. Anyways. So, but, but so also, and so Spew is the Society for the Promotion of Elvish Welfare, which is the thing that Hermione yes. wants to protect house elves. So I was just a Slytherin who didn't quite understand it and thought he was going to get a free slave, a free house elf out of it. Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. And so I like that's that was just really fun. It was sort of like it was completely non-canonical, and it was, it was sort of turns out to be very much in the spirit of sort of the stuff we're doing in the show cool um, so that's yeah that is the, the moment i the, the scene i remember from the, ah. uh, the audition and so uh, were you a fan beforehand i i was so i am too old to have grown up reading harry potter sadly no i know it's like well you know, i think everybody every artist has a tragedy in their life like dickens grew up working in a, in a uh, Louvre, no, a, a boot black factory pasting labels on the bottles and i had to grow up without harry potter so we all have oh. our crosses to yeah um, but yeah, but so I, I heard about it when I was a grown-up, and it was sort of a sensation at that point. This was around the time, I think, after, just after book three came out. And I read the first book, and it seemed fine. And I read the second book, and it seemed fine. I was like, okay, I, I see the pattern. It's going to be the same thing every book. There'll be these vague hints of this evil wizard, and not much will ever happen. And then I read the third book, and I was blown away. And I was like, oh my god. And then you go back and you read the first one, and you realize there's all these clues. You realize uh, you've thought everything through yeah, rigorously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was completely hooked from that point. But I was a, I was a grown up, uh, became a grown up addict of it. I feel that I should probably revisit them because I have read them all and I have seen all the films. Yeah. But I don't. I'm unable to retain detail in the way that I did when I was a child. Yes. So if I, I would remember who everyone was uh, and, and you know when they transformed into something else and how it all fit together. But I'm just like I don't have the spare capacity to keep it all in my head anymore. I completely relate to that. I've, I've read all the books a couple of times. I feel like I know them better than most 46-year-old men do. <laughs> but, but, you know, I have a conversation with my daughter, and I, I'm suddenly turning into the way I remember my dad was when I was talking about the books I loved with him. I'm like, oh, yeah, so there's this character who, what was his name in book three? And my daughter's like, he was in book five, chapter seven. His middle name was such and such. Here's what his wand was like. And, yeah. 
I think when you're a child, you've just got more space in your head for those sort of things. I think that's right. And then when you're an adult, there's lots of other stuff you have to take care of and it fills up your head. So, exactly. Uh, so, um, so you've had uh, rehearsals with Magic. What, what kind of format have they taken? Uh, so actually, it was really interesting. So, so when we started off, Jules was not exactly sure what form the show would be. So part of what we did is we tried different things and saw what worked. Uh, what didn't work? Uh, what didn't work is a very plot-heavy, structured okay. narrative. And what's interesting, because part of what's so great about the books is how carefully crafted they are. That yeah. if there's a sentence on page one, it will pay off on you know page 200 of book five. Yeah. Um, but, but obviously you can't do that in improv, and it's, but it can be very hard to abandon that. So I think we were doing a lot of scenes where we would say, well, as you remember, there's a dark wizard in the common room of Hogwarts, and we must go into the maze to... And it was just like... There's so much time talking about what happens in the past scene or what was going to happen in the next scene. Uh, and Jules has done an excellent job of sort of weaning us off that and pruning it away. And then what we ended up deciding to do was... So at one point we were thinking about having uh, narration between to bridge each scene. Yeah. Um, but it made it too hard to resist trying to follow the plot of one scene into the next scene. So what we tried for our first show, which worked really well, was no narration for the first three scenes. Um, and my personal goal was, for, it's a 45-minute show, and my personal goal for the first 20 minutes was not to say anything about what had happened in the previous scene. Right. Um, and that's, you know, if somebody, if my scene partner brought it up, of course I'd follow on that, but not to introduce it myself. Um, and, I, and I found that works better for me personally, and I think the, the having just a few scenes with no narration works really well for the show. And things ended up tying together beautifully in an emotional way, the way like a good improv show will, but it didn't, without sort of the the mechanical plot rigor of yeah. the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So do you ask for a suggestion? Is this a book title I imagine? Uh, I'm imagining book title would be, well, no? It's interesting because when we started off, we were thinking of this as being like, this is the lost book. This is a lost book recently discovered. But but again, that that drives you a little bit too much, I think, towards plot and towards what is the story of this evening. Right, yeah. So yeah. Uh, we messed around a little bit, and the, the one we came up with, and as soon as we tried it in rehearsal, I think we all knew it was the right one, was we asked an audience member for their Patronus. And oh. for those who don't know the books, the Patronus is the, and actually this is good for me to explain this because it's like I'm, I'm practicing what I might say if I'm introducing it at a show. Um, the Patronus is a spell you cast to protect you from evil in general and Dementors in particular. It takes the form of an animal and it is often, most important, especially important for improv purposes, is it is frequently an animal that is linked to a relationship that's emotionally important to you. Uh. So Harry's Patronus is based on what his dad's was. Um, there's somebody who felt strongly about, about so, well, I don't want to spoil things about the book for people who haven't read it, but it's, if some, there's, people, there's moments where somebody realizes someone else is in love with somebody because their Patronus echoes them. Uh. So we start off by explaining a little bit about Patronus and asking someone to think about a relationship with a person who makes them feel safe or a place where they felt safe and what animal is related to that. Oh, and then we have a conversation, brief conversation with them about why that, who that person is and why they feel safe and why that animal is connected to them. Um, and then jump off from that. That's really lovely, actually. Yeah. That's a really nice taking of an element from the source, but then using his inspiration. That's really good. And it, it works really well. And that one of the happy consequences of it is you have, you have a very physical, concrete suggestion of this animal. So our first show, it was a tiger. And then 
so that's you know immediately you have something specific you can play with. Um, uh, and on top of that, you have this emotional layer that you can either direct, address explicitly or just sort of let lurk in the background. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. So once you've done that, is it two-person scene to start with? Is uh, it at that? So after that, we all say "expecto patronum" and the <laughs> lights black out, and then somebody steps on stage and the lights come back up. Uh, and there's no f- format for it for sort of how it could be. Everybody on stage. It could be one person. It's it's tended to be two or three person scenes for those first few scenes. Yeah. Um, and I think we've tended to let those breathe a little bit and let the relationships develop. So so when it was the tiger, uh, the the woman who proposed that said that her mom she thinks of her mom as a tiger and it was just like this fiercely protective but very loving and supportive. So the first scene ended up being between Ron Weasley and his mom because that's sort of this very loving. Thing. It was mostly the two of them, and occasionally somebody else would come through to sort of illuminate their relationship, but it was mostly them. I should mention, by the way, so I feel like my examples have been very canon-heavy, that I'd say about maybe 20% of the show is canon characters, characters from the book, and the rest is just like random people we've made up who yeah, happen yeah. to be in this universe. So I'm particularly interested in that 20%. So how, how do you embody, you know, Ron Weasley, for example... Yes, so we had, one of the things we did early on is we each or, or, or picked a character and came in to talk about what are their physical characteristics, what are their personality characteristics. Some of them are easier than others. I, one of my weaknesses as an improv person, I can't do voices much. I'm not much of a character person. I especially am self-conscious of doing British accents. Like if I'm in America and no one knows how bad my British accents are, I'll happily do them. But here I mainly do American accents because people here don't realize how bad my American accents are. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, I, the accent I'm speaking in now is very convincing. You wouldn't know I'm actually yeah. French, but but this is the only one I can do. <laughs> it's very yeah, good. I'm yeah. very impressed. Thank you. And you've also, on me. You've also yeah. kept it up for many, many years. <laughs> yes. so, you know. Yeah, 46 so far. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So so Ron has like sort of lots of stuff with his eyebrows and looks surprised and lots of interjections ah. of of you know crepe Harry or um, so. But so. yeah. So who did you uh, who did you talk about? So I I ended up I did two I did Dumbledore and somebody else did Dumbledore and did a great job of sort of every you know pretty much everything about him. But the one thing I noticed because I'm so bad at the accents and the physical things, I sort of focused on the stuff that I think I'm better at, which is sort of more the verbal aspects. And I noticed that Dumbledore has a specific verbal tick, uh, which is he'll say something, then he'll pause, and then he'll reverse or play with the words. So it's um, we may find joy even in the darkest times if we simply remember to turn on the light. Ah. Or, um, true bravery is not standing up to your enemies. It is standing up to your friends. <laughs> so we actually we made, up a, we made a warm-up game called Dumbledore where one person says the first half of that and the other person somehow does the other. So, so here, say something, any sort of observation could be banal or profound. The sun is high in the sky. But the sun of love is high in our hearts. <laughs> and then after, after you do that, after somebody else, you know, you usually do a circle and one person says the first and then whoever's inspired says the second. And then everybody goes, Dumbledore! <laughs> so it's a, it's a really fun warm-up, actually. I definitely, That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, so do you have a favorite character to play? 
Um, uh, canon character. I'm gonna, yes. I'm going to come to non-character. So I, I, I try. It was Dumbledore, but then I found I loved doing that so much that I was like ignoring the emotion of the scene. I was doing a horrible scene work just because I love that phrase thing. Um, so I, I, I sort of said, rule for myself, probably no Dumbledore. I may lift that now that um, you know, i I guess I like Snape because I feel like he's, he's the one, he's the one I'm closest to being able to do because you simply speak nasally and slowly. <laughs> and at least that's like, it's not the greatest Snape, but in the context, it's probably recognizably yeah. Snape. Yeah, no, I, I would yeah. say that. And that's quite a nice way of doing it. So you're not doing an Alan Rickman impression, but you're invoking the yes. character. Yes. Sort of and I should say that I, I can't remember who it was who, who presented Snape to us, but I basically, they taught me how to do it. I can't, if somebody teaches me the steps of sort of a specific, then I can do it. Yeah. Um, but I, I would not have been able to like read the book and watch Alan Rickman and then extract those elements. Right. Yeah. In some ways it's easier to do an impression of somebody doing an impression of somebody else. Exactly. They've distilled the few characteristics that you can copy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think in our first show, the only canon character I was, I started to do Snape in a scene and then backed out of it because that was actually, it was actually a bad choice uh, for that specific scene. Uh, and then uh, Jacqueline Black sort of assigned me Pomp, Madame Pomfrey at one point, but it was like the very end, I had like two lines, I didn't do make any, and no one knows what she looks or sounds like, so I was able to just be myself and... I can't even remember who she is. She is the nurse. She's the one who's constantly patching up the kids uh... when they... The, random disasters befall them during their daily I remember life. the random disasters. Yes. And I remember them being patched up. I don't remember the nurse character, but maybe... Which I'm is, sure yes, why she's the perfect character for me to play as a canon <laughs> character. Although now when I read her, I will imagine you. Yeah, oh, good, good. As, as you should. As J.K. Rowling intended. <laughs> uh, are there Quidditch matches? So we, we worked out... We spent some time in rehearsal figuring out how it worked, and we came up with this fantastic idea where we'd have, like little Quidditch figures on a stick, like a puppet, and we'd zoom them around, and we'd, like, and you'd zoomed out, and you'd see them flying around, and then you'd like zoom in on like us like you know leaning forward as if we were on a broom, and maybe we'd actually have brooms, and we never actually did that in a show. Yeah. And it hasn't, we certainly, I mean, we can't, we, we didn't do all the preparation of getting the puppets and things, because that just didn't feel like the show we were doing, and I think if, if a Quidditch match came up in a show, we'd do one, but it's, it hasn't yet. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you've only got 45 minutes uh, to do a performance and you're going to spend, what, I don't know, however long doing the Quidditch matches, yeah, it's a big ask. So Exactly. That's fair enough. Yeah, and we, we sort of, we thought about it early in the process, but I think Jules is still figuring out how much, how many beats of the book he wanted, like whether the show was really going to capture every beat of the book or just as it is now, a much looser thing. And if you're doing every beat of the book, you have to have Quidditch, but if you're just sort of playing around in the world, then it might or might not come. Yes, because if you were going to do all the beats of the book, you'd want to have all four seasons and all the terms. and yeah, exactly. that's, I can see that as being particularly uh, restrictive. Yes. Cool. So you have experience of uh, the, well, I was going to say children's books, but you are a children's books author? Yes, Is that yes, how you describe yourself? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Tell me about those. Uh, so um, I, I write children's books, as you say, and my my I started off. I would describe myself as initially an accidental children's author, 
in that I wrote books that I thought were for really sophisticated grown-ups, and I kept meeting 10-year-olds who liked them. <laughs> and I felt like, okay, I've, I've figured out my level. I'll, I'll, um, uh, I, you know, one of the advantages, though, of, of starting that way is that I think a mistake people sometimes make when they write for kids is they talk down to kids. They don't work at the top of their intelligence. And I feel like having written the most sophisticated books I could do and finding out that 10-year-olds like them, I just keep being as smart as I can and figure this is kids will like them. This is um, so, so my first intentional children's book uh, came out last year, and it's called The City of Secret Rivers, and it is a magical fantasy set in London. Um, so it's, it's just like Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> the only difference is that it's, it's set in London rather than Hogwarts. And also about six billion fewer copies sold. But other than that, it's exactly the same. That's interesting. Um, I thought Neil Gaiman, actually, Neil Gaiman was the way in which you've taken the real world um, and then extrapolated magical reasons for things being the way they are. It's really interesting that you said that because I, Neil Gaiman was a huge influence on me. And I... Uh, I loved his Sandman books when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of lost touch with him uh, at a certain point. Uh, basically, the comics got too expensive, so I put them aside. And I didn't quite twig on the fact that he was writing novels at that point. And I had this great original idea of like a magical twist on the sewers underneath London. Um, so I, I wrote a draft or two of it. And then I discovered that well, I hadn't been paying attention to him. Neil Gaiman had written Neverwhere. Never yes. Exactly. And I had this moment of terror because, like, undoubtedly, like, I knew for a fact it was going to be better than anything I was going to do. But so I read it, and actually, the advantage of Neil Gaiman hitting on your idea before you do is he is such a distinctive voice that his take on it was completely different than mine. Yes. And so I felt like, okay, there, although it's interesting, there's, there's a few cases where I know for a fact, well, I don't know for a fact, but I, I strongly suspect he's reading the same source material I am because he also has, for example, a giant pig, which, in my book I should mention, has a giant pig, uh, but that is historically based. You, you may not know it, but historically speaking, there are giant pigs in the sewers of London. I did not know that. It is. Now, now the history books will tell you it is that those are legends. Um, the, uh, uh, so the one thing I should, I'll, I'll, so my book happens to, to, it takes place in London, uh, and the, the sort of the conceit of it is that the sewers of London, that sort of elaborate Elizabethan, I'm sorry, the elaborate Victorian sewer construction project was a cover-up for a project to prevent magical catastrophe. And there were these magical rivers running through London, and they had to bury them beneath the ground to stop a catastrophe from happening. Um, and, and it's a matter of historical fact, there were rivers running through London that, were, that now do flow through the sewers. Um, so once I had that idea, I started researching the actual history of the sewers. Um, and there were, for example, people called Toshers, whose job was to, or whose self-assigned job, they wandered into the sewers, they would sift through the muck there, and they would look for coins or silverware or whatever getting washed down. So I had Toshers in my book who were looking for magical artifacts. Um, and an actual historical fact about Toshers was they claimed to have seen, like a Tosher legend, was that there was a pig who swam into the sewers at one point in Hampstead and could have just like let himself flow down out the river, but because he's a pig, he was too stubborn. And he would not, he insists on swimming upstream. So the Toshers will tell you, he swam, he's been swimming upstream constantly, he got stuck in the sewers, he's grown to enormous size, and sometimes when you're wandering the sewers, you will find this. So so I'm sure that, that Neil Gaiman read the same yeah, legends yeah, I had and, yeah. and did his own take on that, 
But so that is so there is a giant pig in my book, and that is where that comes from. And oh. a very stubborn giant pig, in fact. See, sometimes this is actually it feels like cheating because the hard part when you're making a book, obviously, is you have to come up with the story and the characters. But but this is like this is a gift. This is a giant stubborn pig who's roaming through the sewers, and that's a character right there. And so I had to steal that. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to to be inspired by. That, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I love it when you can take. Well, yeah, when you you just look into the history and it's like these things are just there just to be put into a book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like um, you have a I don't want to give too much away, but it's quite early on in the book. There's sort of an explanation um, about how we in the UK generally there's a hot and there's a cold tap. Yes. And uh, the reason that they're not the same tap as they might be in the US or something like that. So it's all. Yes, it's. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, the second book, is that out? The second book is out in the US. It comes out in the UK in September. Cool. And that's called? That's called The City of Guardian Stones. Cool. Uh, and it is sort of, it is similar, but takes place more above ground. So right. it begins to explore some more of the above ground consequences of these magical rivers beneath the city. Cool. Excellent. Right. Well, I shall look forward to reading that one as well. I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, so returning to improv, how did you discover improv? Uh, so I, when I got to university in my first year, I decided that I was not going to do any extracurricular that I, I had done previously, that I had done in secondary school. Um, and you did extracurricular stuff at secondary school? Yes. So is this not something that's happened? So I grew up in the U.S. In case you can't, I, again, my posh Oxford accent might have tricked you, but, but do, do you not have like high school? I think it was just me, to be honest. I didn't really want to get any more involved than I had to. I understand. I only went to stuff at lunchtime because I didn't want to be out in the playground. I, I can totally understand. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. But I, so I, I did too much in, in secondary school. I was on the school newspaper. I did student government. I did debate club. I did math team. So so I decided I didn't want to do any of those. And basically, like, the only, the only nerdy pursuits that were left to me, like, I could have joined the football team, but I'm not going to join the football team. The only, like, really nerdy, hardcore nerdy stuff that was left for me was, like, uh, uh, choral singing and, you know, or the various acapella singing groups and theater. And I can't sing, so that left theater. So <laughs> I did some theater. And uh, my freshman year, there was an improv comedy group that had auditions. And I auditioned and got in. Uh, it was actually it was a combination improv and sketch team, right. and one of my lessons is that you should be an improv group or a sketch group, but Ooh. not but or, or at least that some people do it can do that. No, they can't. But yeah, no, they can't. Yeah, certainly, certainly not. Certainly, that group could not. And the the problem was that we we never spent enough time writing sketches to really have a sketches to perform, but we never spent enough time practicing improv to be that great at improv. So we actually never did a show the whole year I was there. And then it fell apart. But then my soft, my sophomore year, my second year, uh, some some people started a new improv group, uh, and that was just improv. And I joined that, and that was great and lots of fun. Was this quipfire? This was quipfire. Yes, you've done your homework exactly. Um, so I am, I am a, uh, I'm not. Was not one of the founders of quipfire because I did not start it, but I was a founding member. I was one of the first people to join it, and that was 25 years ago, and it is still going on at my university. Is it and really? They have, yes, wow. have, they have reunions, and they had their 25th anniversary recently, and it is bizarre to me. Um, the the our most famous uh, alumni, and I say our because I take full credit for everything she's done, is Ellie Kemper, 
uh, of the office, and I'm breaking okay. with Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so wow. yes, yeah, yeah. So basically, I she she has me to thank. It's, it's really everything she is she owes to me um, uh, for having been in a comedy group that she was in a decade later clearly um, but uh, so but yeah yeah so I, I did that in college and then after I graduated college I was working in Washington DC and I was in an improv group there and then I moved to LA and the improv scene in LA was different from what I was used to uh, it was my first exposure to the idea that you actually have to pay to be in a group which I now know is pretty common, yeah. um, but I think just being spoiled by being at university where you get the theater for free and nobody's, you know, it's all handed to you. Um, and I, so I just sort of stopped doing improv for about 20 years. Wow. Uh, and moved, we moved, my wife and I moved to London, and then a year or two after we moved here, I looked into whether there's an improv scene here, and I found one class somewhere that seemed very far out. All I think with hindsight is just because I didn't know how to get around London. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I didn't really do much after that. And then a few years ago, I sort of decided to check out again and found out that there was a huge improv scene and I jumped back in. But basically the upshot is I, I know that you like to have on your show a mix of people who are very experienced and people who are relatively new. That's very much, the, yeah, that is, the very, that is very, very central to what I do, yes. Yeah. And I feel like I'm both, of, I tick both those boxes because hey, hey, hey. I've been doing improv for like, I started doing improv 30 years, but I've actually been doing improv for like the past three years because <laughs> I sort of forgot everything I learned at university in the 20 years that followed. Did it so not come back? It did. Well, the other thing is that all the improv I had been doing was short form. Like, we literally did not know that long form existed. We'd hear rumors of it, and then we sometimes would, like, try to do it, but we were really just doing, like, games that sounded vaguely like some long form thing we had heard about, but were really short form, so... It's really interesting. I think being in London, it's unusual the amount of long form there is. I think if you go to other parts of the UK, for example, there's much more short form. I went to the British Improv Project um, and met lots of improvisers from other parts of the country and it really seemed that long form you know, wasn't the norm, it was short form that was more popular. So, Do, do you have an idea as to why that is? is there, or do you think there's a, any cause and effect somewhere in there? In there? I think audiences like short form. Mm -hmm. And when I say audiences, I mean proper audiences who aren't improvisers. Yes. Um, I think they like short form more because it's funny. Yes. And it's much more a, a reliable hit rate mm -hmm. than long form, which can be amazing, but can also be terrible. Yes. And perhaps it's more often terrible than it is amazing. <laughs> I, I won't argue with you on that. That's. But, but short form is very. But you're absolutely right that you know for any short form game, even you're making up on the spot, but you know there's sort of three or four formats that you can work into that will get you laughs there's the sort of the certain beats or kinds of jokes and also if you're not enjoying it it'll be gone soon yes absolutely <laughs> um, which is a, which can be a virtue yeah absolutely. yes definitely 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 um, I just think there's enough there's enough room for all lengths of form yes um, absolutely. and I wouldn't want everything to be short form but equally neither would I want everything to be long form and to be honest, I prefer not even to draw those kind of divisions because it's mm -hmm. all the same thing, really. Mm -hmm. We're just slightly getting at it in a different way. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, and I found that maybe in the, the same spirit of, of not wanting to do the same things I had done before, I felt like I had enough experience with short form that I wanted to try this 
this mysterious long form thing <laughs> I ever had spoken of decades ago. Uh, and so I've really have been, well, the, the group we were in together was short form. And I, the first thing I did was a hoopla short, when I got back into it, was a hoopla short form course, which is where you and I met. Yes. Um, but sort of, I, I, I enjoyed that, but I sort of felt, okay, I think this feels like something I've done before and I want to try, try something new. And Tell me about the Saturday mornings. <laughs> oh, well. Um, they were the, the legendary improv group that featured Stuart Moses, spoken of in hushed tones. Um, yeah, no, so, so I... I say speak up because I cannot hear you. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, uh, uh, I, I did a hoopla course with Steve Rowe, which was, it was the second course in the hoopla, I think, short form improv the path. Yes, because um, there's a beginner's one and yes. then there's a performance one. So I emailed Steve to say, I have tremendous experience in improv decades ago and I've forgotten it all. Should I start with the, with the beginners? He said, no, no, why don't you start with the second one? So I did that. I, I had a great time and uh, met a lot of fantastic people and, and tremendously fun improvisers. And and you will have to correct me if I've got the origin story right, but I believe, and I refreshed my memory recently by listening to episode 100 of the Improv London <laughs> podcast where this was discussed, but in the, the performance at the end of the term, I guess you'd say, um, we did a scene that happened to be a children's TV show. And I don't remember what the game was that led to that. I wasn't there. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Because I'd fallen down a spiral staircase That's two weeks right. previously. Yes. It was my own fault. I was looking at my phone at the time. Um, and now I think if I did it, I would come along. But I just thought, oh, I can't. Because I'd never done a performance at that point. Yes. Um, now... I'm not. I, I, I am always excited about doing a performance, but it's not the thing of terror that it once was. Yes. And so I just couldn't face going along and not being able to perform and to watch other people do it. Now I would go along, right. but different times. Yeah. So yeah, I only heard about this afterwards. Uh, and so we we enjoyed that, and a couple of us from from the course talked about doing. I think sort of. I think we put the invitation out to everybody in the course because I think we all liked each other. But it was just sort of a specific group of us who wanted to keep doing, and we thought that doing a kids' TV show themed uh, improv would be a fun, uh, unique selling point. Yes. Um, just since that wasn't out there, so we did that, and we we sort of came up with our own kids' show flavor on a bunch of improv games, uh, and I very much enjoyed it. I, I, and I actually remember thinking this. I think after that, that first performance we did, I remember feeling like I was much less funny than I was at university. And by the way, I should mention that one of the reasons why I started doing improv again after all these this time was I, I just, I, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. I was generally feeling dumber than I felt when I was at university. And I remembered, well, I was back when I was feeling smart, I was doing improv. So maybe improv is what I need to be smart again. And then I, I did the show and I, it was fine, but I feel like, boy, I, I wasn't, I'm not as witty. I'm not as smart as I was. And shortly afterwards, I found a friend of mine from my college improv group found a videotape of our performance and I watched it and I realized, no, I wasn't any better then. I was just, I was just a lot more arrogant. <laughs> it's just, I thought I was better. Now I'm just more realistic. About um, but so that was, that was actually sort of a useful life lesson. Actually, yeah. It's always really interesting when you can uh, either watch a video or listen to the audio of a performance because your perception of it um, as you do it is very different from how it seems from outside. But it seems even more the case if there's been a passage of several, a couple of years, sort of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so I missed the performance. Um, Kit Proudfoot mm -hmm. uh, was really supportive and said that 
uh, he'd felt that there was a, a sort of a Stuart shaped energy missing, mm -hmm. which was a really lovely thing. Uh, so I got on board and we did our first two shows with two nights running. I seem to remember that our first show was at Duck Duck Goose. And then I think we did a launch pad at the Miller. Okay. Or was it the other way around? I thought it was the other way around, but as, as, as we've just discovered that when, when there is videotape evidence, my memory is very poor. <laughs> so I think it must have been Duck Duck Goose first, because that's on a Monday, and it would seem weird to have done a show at the Miller on a Sunday, because yeah, even now there aren't shows on a that Sunday. That sounds right. I think, you, I think you're... That sounds right. I think you're right. And I just vaguely... Just, I just remember being so utterly terrified that I just seemed to remember just sort of standing there and just sort of quaking. But I'm sure that, well, even if that was the case, that probably didn't mean as much to anybody else as it did to me. I just find it really interesting to think back to how scary I found it. Yes. And and has it been a gradual de-scarification or is it just like, a, there was, was there just a moment where it was just like suddenly it was not scary anymore? Actually, I feel within a few performances of the Saturday mornings, um, I've I've always had some nerves, some excitement, and I never want to lose that. But I felt so supported by everybody in the Saturday mornings yeah. uh, that I quickly felt a lot more at ease on stage. And I haven't always felt that at ease when I've been with other people that I didn't trust so much. Yes. Um, should we talk about some of the some of the games because they were really fun like twists on on, on on games okay so we did we did goodies goodies and baddies oh yeah yeah that was uh-huh where we had to find you know this was pre 45th president uh <laughs> so the worst person and the best person then finding some common ground yes that was a really good fun one uh pulp fiction for kids mm -hmm. where we retold uh, <laughs> yeah, just those, you know, those higher certificate films for a child-friendly audience. I really enjoyed that. We did one where there was a sort of an advice thing. Oh, was, yeah. There was a sitting down one. Yeah, where we had, we had, oh, good, it was like a, it was good advice, bad advice. And then I think, so, so the, I can't remember what the UK equivalent was, but the, in the US there were comic strips called Goofus and Gallants. Uh, I like, remember it being called that. I didn't yes. realize where the origin was. So, because it would be this very heavy-handed, you know, Goofus says thank you to the waiter. Gallant spills his water and doesn't clean it up. It was just like a sort of Goofus. No, I'm sorry. Gallant, obviously. Goofus was the bad guy. Gallant was the good guy. Of course. <laughs> Clearly, Gallant would be the good guy. Um, but so, yeah. So, we'd have, I think we initially played with having two, just like a good advice and a bad advice. And I think eventually we decided we'd have a third person to yes. synthesize them. Well, I remember Ben Tattersall Smith playing Sting yeah. as the third person. Yeah, it was good advice, bad advice, famous advice. I don't remember. I don't remember it the, being famous yeah. advice, but it was, yeah. And we did one about traveling back in time and doing a news report from historical events. Right, appearance. exactly. Yep, we had a. That's exactly right. I just remember there was one time when Sarah Archer had got us a gig at a pub and we were the kind of we were the filling in an evening of stand-up so there were like 10 stand-ups before us i may be yes i may be mistaken it seemed like there were 10 possibly there were 20 stand-ups before us then there was our performance 
and then there were about 20 stand-ups afterwards or something like that. It seemed like that. Maybe there were more. Uh, I do remember... Because we pitched it as a, a children's TV programme and asked for a historical event or something like that. Yeah, I think we had a news... It was like a children's news show. That's and right, that was, yeah, we'd yeah. Ask, ask the, the kids... Because, you know, part of the fun of it was that the audience got to play a role. They were the kids at the show. Yes. And we would ask them what event they wanted to see. Yes. I do remember one person saying they wanted to see the Holocaust. Uh, and I said, oh, we did that last week. You've missed it. That's a, that's a perfect answer. <laughs> and I'm just moving on. So yes. Moving on. You've kind of got your laugh. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yes. This is, by the way, this is, you know, we mentioned the good part of short form is that if you're not enjoying it, there's something else. The danger of short form is you have to keep asking for suggestions. Ah. And so the more you ask, the more chance there is that you get yes. the Holocaust or whatever. But, I mean, yeah. but I suppose one of the things of being in a short form group yes. is learning to deal with that sort of Absolutely, thing. Absolutely, yes. It's just, exactly. Um, it just, it's part of the short form craft. Is yeah. Yeah without quashing the audience's enthusiasm yes move on because sometimes people will say something and they just I don't know sometimes they want to put you in a difficult position yes and sometimes they just want to get the laugh from having contributed exactly and I don't know where I'm going with this and sometimes they don't know sometimes they say the first thing that pops into their head and they don't realize it's the same thing that's popped into every other audience member's head for the past <laughs> 10 times you've done that show. Yes. And it's a good suggestion. It's just the same one you've gotten. And you've got yes. Out. Yes. I feel showstoppers must get that a lot in particular. Mm. Good times. Yeah. No, it was a fun group. Um, but I think, I think what often, what we were talking about at the beginning, just that everyone has different schedules and different levels of busyness. And it, it just, people it felt like people were having a harder time making time to show up and yeah. it wasn't always predictable how many people we'd have at a given show or rehearsal and I yeah I found that challenging yeah it was tricky especially for those of us who are parents and we have to plan ahead and we have to be organized we can't afford just to rock up to places because we need to make sure that our children are looked after exactly and I, I've, I've noticed that as a general rule the people who have the hardest time getting to rehearsals are the ones who are most who actually show up. Yes. Because there's some sort of cost to it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, apart from I, who brought my children along to some of the rehearsals. Which I was actually really impressed by. First of all, because <laughs> your kids were great and were <laughs> tremendously well-behaved. <laughs> yes. But also, I just felt like, to me, that was real commitment. That you weren't... It would yes. have been very easy for you to say, well, sorry, guys, I got the kids. I'll see you later. I am normally very strict about not combining my children with my social life yeah. because I'm very keen on trying to do one thing well rather than two things badly um, but because our show was aimed at children yes that kind of felt that it was a more legitimate thing to bring them along to the rehearsal it definitely did you also you never know in improv how what the rating will be whether yes. it will be adults only or but because because, yeah, and usually that's just purely a stylistic, a personal choice, but because the conceit of our show is that a children's show, I think we decided pretty early on that we would not go for the one obvious joke of now we're going to make us do say something obscene or whatever because you get the laugh and then the rest of your show is ruined because you've just broken like the one thing that is your selling point. Yes. Um, you know, there can be 
kind of undercurrents of stuff and that's fun to play with yes that you're, you get a laugh out of the things that you are not saying and yes. sort of, that was sort of the whole joke of pulp fiction for kids that yes. we were doing these very grown-up films and you you have to to find it funny you have to know what stuff we're omitting yes but yeah yes cool um so if someone were to stand on step on stage with you what could they do to delight you uh i would say a few things i i love getting endowed i think there's some people so i had this conversation with chris mead who was saying he's got this theory of like the multiple he's got like the uh the myers-briggs improv version where he has like different different uh metrics that you can sort of which we're on the spectrum of different things you are and one of them are do you like 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 um instigating an idea or receiving an idea and ah. i i sometimes i do sometimes like to instigate but i much prefer the receiving that it's just much less pressure and then you can jump off it and that's to me part of the delight of it yes. so so something they could do would just be to make a strong initiation a strong offer and i would like that very much i think there's a balance to be had yes and i think in the past I have relied too much on taking somebody else's suggestion and running with it, which yeah. I think is a very vital thing to do, but maybe not all the time because you are slightly putting the pressure on them to come up yes. with the idea. Absolutely. And I and it's knowing knowing it's good to know what you like and what you're good at and what's fun for you, but you should sometimes do the other stuff too. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. What else? What else could they do? Uh, I would say, well, I guess the flip side of that is is figuring out what I'm trying to do and coming up with additional ways of doing it. So, uh, in in our first magic show, um, in a previous scene, uh, so uh, uh, Yulia Ekoff uh, had something where she was like trying to convince somebody she was a Death Eater, and sort of she was trying to convince somebody to join the Death Eaters on the strength of how cool the tattoo was. <laughs> and she had a line about how it's sort of like a two-way radio on your wrist. And so I, that gave me an idea for a scene. So I start, went out and um, did a scene where I was a Death Eater who was trying to kill some innocent school child. To, and I kept getting calls on my <laughs> Death Eater tattoo. Um, but I did about two of those. And then I realized, that's it. I've done my joke. I'm on stage. I have no idea what to do next. And at that, pretty much exact, at that exact moment, as I was saying, I have no idea what to do next, other people jumped on and were like, ha, ha, like, Suddenly, like one of them had like a fax come out of my deputy tattoo, and that was great. And that gave us like a few more minutes to play. And then someone came up and lifted up my shirt. It was like 1990 uh, beeper tattoo, and I was like getting tattoos on like my. And then that was something else about like the old, you know the tattoo I got back in the 90s when everyone had beepers, and I couldn't get it removed because you can't laser remove a deputy tattoo. But now you have this obsolete technology. It was great. So so I loved that. That it was just a it was this perfect timing of letting me do my idea, but yeah. at exactly the moment I ran out of iterations on it jumping forward to, to give me more. Oh, that, that is fantastic. Yeah. That's really great. Cool. And what would you say your signature move was? What's the thing you do to save the day, bring the house down? Well, my my signature move, there's a two different questions. I would say my, my signature move is after the show beating myself up. Oh, really? But, uh, what I try not to do, but I, I, um, I think maybe all improvisers do that as you sort of think there's always the moment afterwards where you realize, oh, I could have said this in this scene, and then I missed this offer in that scene. Um, but but I don't know. You know, I was I, I I listened to this podcast, and when we were talking about having me on, I was thinking, okay, he's going to ask me that, I and I I had lots of notice because we talked about <laughs> like we talked about for two weeks from coming on the show, and I don't know what my signature move is. Ah. So I I think I guess I'm good at the game of the scene that I'm. 
I like that. I you know, in that one I had a very definite game, which was that. Um, maybe that. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. That's good. That's yeah. good. And does the the being a writer help with that? It does, and I definitely think I am more of a writer improv person than an actor person. That I I'm something that I want to push myself to do more of is more characters, more voices, more different body language. But 80% of the time, I'm sort of my physically myself on stage. Yeah. And I might be conceptually saying or doing things I wouldn't do, but it is that writerly thing of the words are different, but sort of the body language is ah. sort of the same. Um, so, but I definitely do think that the writing, the writing helps and it hurts. Um, I found that I think I mentioned that, that one, for, for all of us, part of the process of the rehearsals for Magic was worrying less about plot. I think that was more a challenge for me to let go because that's what I do professionally. Yeah, yeah, I, like, yeah, yeah. I should be the one who comes in at the end and says, oh, okay, these are the five things we've talked about. Now I'm going to tie them all into one perfect thing. Um, and it was hard to let go of that. And Jules was actually really helpful um, yeah. and, and sort of saying, I wasn't quite conscious that I was feeling like I should be doing this because I'm the writer. And Jules sort of said that, you know, uh, he, well, he, he said that when he joined Impromptu Shakespeare, he said that he had a background in Shakespeare. He felt like he was going to be the guy who was going to bring the actual Shakespeare to it. But he had to let go of that, and that was not what his role was going to be. And so I was like, okay, you know, that's a, I will let go of that. Uh, and so I, I think I've, I've enjoyed it more and been better having let go of that. Cool, cool. So now it's time for the big final question. Uh, what is your Patronus? Oh, Okay, this one I'm prepared for. I've given lots of thought to this. My Patronus is, it is a specific kind of sheepdog from the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, the actual name for it is the Caucasian Sheepdog, but I, I, that adjective just, I just try not to say that that, I'd rather say a sheepdog from the Caucasus Mountains. It just feels less fraught. Um, but so, it's a sheepdog. It's a dog bred to protect sheep. But I guess the specific danger in these mountains is not wolves, but bears. So this is a dog that is bred to scare off bears, and it is huge. It's it's like the size of a small bear, but that's still pretty big for a dog. Yeah. Um, and there's one in our neighborhood who is so sweet and gentle. And I've, I've been told that if you don't train them properly, like you don't want a badly trained dog that can fight a bear. You, you, so I'm not sure it's a practical pet, but I just... I just love dogs in general, yeah. and the idea of this huge, gentle creature is really appealing to me. So that would be my Patronus. <laughs> Thank you very much for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. It's been my pleasure. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I made this. That's Improv! <laughs>